This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brickhouse Brokamp. How you doing, Robert? Brokamp? Fine, thank you. In this week's episode, we're joined by Jeff Ostrowski. He covers real estate and mortgages for Bankrate, and we're going to talk about the state of real estate in the U.S. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Allison, what's up? Well, bro, I want to share the fascinating story of Marion Stokes and the power of investing to fuel audacious ideas. So I found out about her thanks to History Cool Kids on Instagram. So if you're looking for a recommendation for a follow, History Cool Kids. And they got it from Atlas Obscura, which I don't think I need to recommend to you because I think we all know Atlas Obscura is pretty awesome. And Atlas Obscura wrote about it because of a 2019 documentary about Marion Stokes titled Recorder. So, bro, let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it. I, I can't wait. Born in the late 20s, Marion Stokes had been a librarian, lifelong activist, and local TV producer when a magical piece of technology was born, the Betamax tape recorder. At the time, broadcast TV was considered pretty ephemeral. A broadcast happens, it goes out into the world, and it's never really seen again. One example, Doctor Who fans out there apparently lament the lost 97 episodes of the show that were aired in the 60s and 70s, and that were, as a matter of routine, deleted from the BBC archive, never to be seen again. Because, I mean, who wants to watch a TV episode over again? Am I right? I mean, you've seen it once. So enter Marion Stokes and her Betamax machine in 1975. She began recording bits of sitcoms, science documentaries, and political news coverage, and, as her son explains, from the outset of the Iran hostage crisis on November 4, 1979, she hit record and she never stopped. Like, literally. When I tell you that over the course of 33 years, Marion taped over 70,000 VHS and beta tapes of television, often running as many as eight machines at one time, you'd think, wow, this lady loves TV. But the truth was that she distrusted TV and the media. As her son explains in the documentary, she, quote, questioned the media's motivations and recognized the insidious intentional spread of disinformation. Ms. Stokes was alarmed. And in a private Herculean effort, she took on the challenge of independently preserving the news record of her times in its most pervasive and persuasive form, television. So from a website called um, freeze.com, they wrote that she was obsessed with the mediation of media and she wanted to track how news stories changed as they broke and identify information dropped or suppressed. Looked at her- how She wanted to look at how narratives were massaged and see what dramatic subplots and characters emerged as the news unfolded each day. So her archive really ramped up at the advent of the 24-hour news channel. So like I said, up to eight machines recording constantly for years to capture the three local networks and 24-hour news channels like CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and more. As her son explained, life revolved around creating this archive, and it was everyone's jobs to keep the machines going and swap out tapes every few hours. According to Wikipedia, in addition to her TV archive, she received half a dozen daily newspapers and 150 monthly periodicals collected for half a century. Stokes had also accumulated 30,000 to 40,000 books. So you might be wondering, where did this woman get the money to fund the project? Matt Wolf, who directed the documentary, again titled Recorder, said in a Reddit AMA, 
Marion was a working class single mother until she met her second husband, John Stokes, who came from an affluent family. After their marriage, Marion became a savvy investor, primarily in Apple stock, and that significantly enhanced their wealth and helped pay for the taping project, which later required purchasing nine additional houses to store the tapes and materials. In a word, Marion was a hoarder, but she was a hoarder with a plan. Fun fact, she also loved Apple. In fact, it's kind of sad. In one of the articles that I read, her son writes that um, she considered Steve Jobs, whom she, I don't think she ever actually really met, more of a son than her own son. So that's <laughs> oh, pretty boy. heartbreaking. But she also owned almost 200 Macs over the year, Macintosh computers over the year, and they were unwrapped and kept in a climate-controlled storage facility until they were auctioned off after her death. So what happened to these recordings? Well, when Marion passed away in 2012, the recordings stopped. She left them all to her son, who later donated them to the Internet Archive at archive.org, where they are being digitized and put online. We're talking 400,000 hours Oh my gosh. of television. A, that is a lot of Three's company. So anyway, this is a fascinating story, and you can learn more by reading about her online and also watching the, docu- the documentary um, recorder. I think you can see it on um, – if you donate to, like, PBS, you can maybe see it on their site because it was aired on Independent Lens. But um, you can also see some of the content that she digitized over at archive.org. But my larger takeaway is this. Wealth and investing isn't just about amassing money. It's about what you do with it, whether that's leaving it to the next generation or building something over your lifetime that will impact many generations. Now, Marion Stokes took this to the extreme. I doubt that she was an easy woman to live with from everything I've read, but she had a vision and she put her wealth to work achieving it. So, dear listeners, I hope investing is also helping you achieve your goals, be them audacious or fairly mundane. And that, bro, is what's up. Well, it's been a crazy year. Pandemic, thousands of businesses closed, millions of Americans unemployed. The stock market is still up for the year, well, at least so far. Yet your portfolio may not be your only asset or even your biggest asset. In fact, according to Edward Wolf, an NYU economist, For the bottom 80% of Americans in terms of assets, their number one asset is their home. About 60% of their net worth is in their house. So how has residential real estate fared during the virus crisis and how might that change in the future? Here to help us answer those questions is Jeff Ostrowski, senior writer and analyst at Bankrate. Jeff, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Hey, bro. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the current state of the housing uh, the housing market. Let's get to the numbers. How have prices been holding up during the recession? Well, surprisingly really well. Um, the prices are still going up. And I think I, like a, a lot of people, fell victim to the whole recency bias uh, flaw. Um, you know, that the last time we had a recession, home prices just absolutely collapsed. I and mean, we had 50% uh, drops in values in many parts of the country. And so back in March, when we started going into recession again, I think I I and a lot of others thought, oh, here we go again in terms of home prices. And that really hasn't happened. Home home prices have held up. Home sales are down. um, But fewer people have put their houses on the market. And so the supply and demand curve has just shifted. So we've got uh, basically more buyers than there are houses for sale. 
So we're seeing a lot of bidding wars. I mean, I, I keep hearing these tales of a, a nondescript house getting 30 and 40 and even 50 bids uh, in, over a weekend. So home prices have held up surprisingly well. They're, they're still going up. Um, part of that is because we've got record low mortgage rates and people have more buying power. Um, and then part of it also is it just that the, the pandemic has really changed people's uh, thinking about housing. I mean, you know, if you're going to work or, and your kids are going to school and you're not in your house very much, you can make do with less space. But now that, that we're all crammed into to one space and people are working from home and taking classes from home, it's, uh, you know, you suddenly start to think, hey, I, I could use a bigger house. You brought up a couple of interesting points there. Let's start with uh, mortgage rates. Crazy low. Um, 30-year mortgage, 30-year fixed is around 3%, a little bit above, a little bit below, depending on where you look. 15-year, uh, bit below that. One interesting thing I've noticed, though, is normally the adjustable rate mortgages are the lowest. But from what I've seen, they're at the same as the 30-year fixed or even a little higher. What's going on with that? Yeah, that is a weird situation. And it's funny that you mention ARMS because you know it seems like nobody really pays much attention to ARMS anymore with, with fixed rate mortgages being so low for so long. And it, as you said, they're in the, the 3% range or even below for the 30-year fixed. Um, but they've, they haven't been much above that over the past decade. I, I mean, I think they briefly spiked up to around 5%. But um, I mean, when fixed rate mortgages are so low, it's uh, and they've stayed consistently low. It, people just sort of uh, you know lose interest in arms. So it's um, that, that's part of it. Part of it is uh, just that there there aren't as many lenders uh, offering arms, and so there's there's less you know less supply. They're less widely available, and so that that probably has something to do. Um, some of it also is that the, uh, without uh, geeking out here too much, but uh, the rates were, were based on LIBOR, the London Interbank Offered Rate for a long time, and LIBOR is going away and a new index is coming in. So that, that might have something to do with it. Um, and then in, in times of economic uncertainty, we, we do see this, uh, th- this pattern where arms suddenly get more expensive than fixed rate mortgages. Um, but, you know, it's intriguing. I, I talk to a lot of consumers, a lot of Lending officers, a lot of mortgage brokers. Nobody's talking about arms. They're all talking about uh, the thirty-year fixed, and they're they're talking about it. How many points should you pay? Should you do a thirty, a fifteen, a ten? What's uh, you know what what are the advantages of different types of, of fixed-rate mortgages? And um, yeah, it just seems like arms have been sort of forgotten. They were they were a hot thing fifteen years ago, but I I almost never hear anyone recommending uh, taking an arm. When rates drop so low, even if you aren't shopping for a mortgage, you're going to pay attention because you might want to refinance. Um, but anecdotally, I've come across people saying it's actually harder than they expected to refinance nowadays. Uh, and then things got a little bit more complicated about this 0.5% refinance fee that kind of came out of nowhere. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So there's, yeah, there's a lot going on, obviously. So part of it is we've had such low rates that uh, lenders are just inundated. Um, you know, in, in normal times, it might take the take a month for a refi to go through. Now it might be two months. Um, I know I, I was talking to somebody recently who said, uh, you know, that Wells Fargo told him his uh, his refi was fine. Everything was on track, but it wasn't going to close for a couple months. And that, that seems pretty common just because lenders don't have en- enough people to handle all this volume. Um, so that's 
that's one issue. Um, the other issue is the the pandemic has made lenders even less or even more risk averse, even less willing to extend credit. So, you know, these days, if you want to get a refi, you better have a, a stellar FICO score, you know, 750 and above. Um, you probably shouldn't try to take any cash out of your home. And you, you definitely want to be well within the, uh, the, the normal bounds of uh, debt to income ratio and loan to value ratio. So, you know, as long as you're borrowing 80% of the value of your house or less, you're, and you've got a high credit score, you're, you should be okay. Um, the, the other wild card, though, is wild card is income verification. And so if you've been furloughed or if you lost your job in the, the past few months, it's going to be really hard to qualify for a refi. So, you know, obviously, a lot of folks are, are refinancing. They're, they're able to do it because they've, uh, you know, home, home values have stayed strong. People have equity. Um, most Americans are still employed and, and didn't lose income. Um, so it, if you're in that box, you're, you're probably good, but there, there certainly are a lot of people who, uh, who are having a hard time refining. And so that, uh, that refi fee that you mentioned, so that, that kind of came out of nowhere. The, the agency that oversees Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in, uh, August said, uh, oh, by the way, starting in a couple of weeks, we're going to charge an extra 50 basis points or half of a percent as a fee on refinances. And so just you know, just in round numbers, if you're borrowing 300 grand, this would be an extra 1500 bucks. Um, the bankers and realtors and the, the whole lending industry was up in arms and said, no, this is unfair. You've got it. We've got a pandemic going on. People are, are hurting. Um, you know, let, let's not do this. And so the, the Fannie and Freddie backed down or a bit, they pushed this back to December. Um, and, and their argument is that they've got uh, billions of dollars of loan losses that they're expecting uh, next year once uh, once all the mortgage forbearance programs go away. And so their argument is, hey, we need the extra money. Um, so who knows what happens in a couple months if uh, if there's enough pressure that, that Fannie and Freddie decide not to do this. But um, yes, that is going to be just one more fee that you have to consider as a, a borrower if you're refinance, refinancing your home. Right. So that's the bottom line is right now it's been pushed off to December. So if you're thinking of refinancing, you should get that ball rolling now. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So a lot of people are have lost their jobs. They're in difficult situations. Um, when the pandemic started, a lot of programs came out either from lenders themselves or from governments offering forbearance, offering uh, moratoriums on foreclosures. Some of those have expired. Some haven't. What's the the general state on Basically, the help you can get if you're having trouble paying your mortgage. Well, the uh, the most generous program is the government forbearance that you mentioned. And so, if if you've got a loan that's backed by Fannie or Freddie, which is you know it's a little hard to know, but but you can find search tools where you can put in your loan number, and they'll tell you if uh, if your loan is is owned by one of those agencies, or if it's a VA loan or an FHA loan. Um, you, you automatically qualify for this mortgage relief known as forbearance. Um, all you have to do is ask for it. You don't have to prove any hardship. You don't have to really do anything other than just notify the, the company that collects your, your mortgage payments that you're going to stop paying. Um, you, can, you can stop paying for six months. And then if after six months you want to remain in forbearance, you can get another six months. So that that's part of the reason that we haven't seen a real flood of foreclosures. The, this uh, this very generous government program that says you can stop paying your mortgage for up to a year with no penalty. So no no fees, no extra charges, no hit to your credit score, nothing. You just stop paying for a year, and then uh, 
then when you're ready, you you can resume payments with with no penalty. Um, and then a, a lot of uh, lenders have have extended those same terms to their borrowers, even when the law doesn't require them to. So if uh, if a bank has a jumbo loan or another type of loan that it's uh, held in its portfolio as opposed to selling to Fannie or Freddie, they're also offering uh, forbearance. Not quite as generous. It typically it tends to be a six-month uh, break from making your payments. But um, yeah, really, it's, uh, it, it's sort of the opposite of what we saw during the Great Recession when we had just millions of foreclosures. Um, it, now we've got uh, almost no foreclosures. I mean, the there, there were hardly any foreclosures during the second quarter of this year. And just to be clear, forbearance doesn't mean you don't have to pay that money eventually, right? And Correct. so there's, there's the, the, the different options seem to be, it seems to me that what is most common is that you'll just get extra time added to your mortgage. But is right, it also right. possible you'll have to come up with a balloon payment or uh, immediately once you start paying back, your, your payments will go up? Uh, so the under the federal law, there are no balloon payments. So the in uh, the, the federal regulators have been very adamant about that. Um, so the the situation is what you describe. You if you stop paying for a year, you essentially just add a year to your mortgage. Um, and, and the idea is that uh, it's it's giving people a, a chance to uh, to you know if they've lost their jobs, they can uh, you know hopefully within a year they'll they'll be collecting a paycheck again and be able to resume making payments. Um, and really with home values as strong as they've been, if, uh, if folks really get into trouble, it's, uh, you know, unlike 15 years ago, they should be able to just sell their homes and, uh, and get out from under their, under the, the problem as opposed to losing the home to foreclosure. It's a, it, it's a bit more of a gray area with the, the banks that are, that are voluntarily offering forbearance on jumbo loans and these other types of loans. Um, I don't think most of them are, are demanding balloon payments, but you would need to, to check with the individual lender if you're in that situation. One way that you have written about how to measure um, how housing is, is faring in different areas of the country is the housing hardship index. Tell us a, a little bit about that and maybe which states are, aren't, aren't looking so good on, on that index. Right. So that was, I, I came up with that idea back in uh, March, April, when we had the, the huge spike in unemployment, when it looked like the economy was going down, looked like maybe the housing market was going to suffer. Um, and so I, I just based it off the old misery index, which uh, summed inflation and uh, unemployment to, to give sort of like a reading of, of how the economy felt. And so this is a, a state by state index. I'm just adding uh, state unemployment and state mortgage delinquency rates and coming up with a number that's a, that shows which which states have, are being hit the hardest and which are doing fairly well. So in the, the first couple months of the recession, back in April and May, the two hardest hit states by far were Nevada and Hawaii. And Nevada and Hawaii didn't really have a lot of COVID cases, but they have very tourism dependent economies and there was no tourism during that period. So I think Nevada's uh, unemployment rate spiked up to 28 percent in in April, and uh, and so it was you know pretty dramatic rise. Since then, the uh, the numbers have shifted a bit. Um, Nevada and, and uh, Hawaii have seen a, some improvement, and now the hardest hit states seem to be the ones that have had the uh, the, the largest number of COVID cases. So in my my most recent uh, numbers, the um, the state of New York was number one, and New Jersey was number two, 
And so obviously those two states were the epicenter of, of COVID deaths. So it kind of makes sense that they would be hit the hardest. Um, and so, but we, as we saw today, the unemployment is, is back down in the single digits. We're in the 8% range from, for unemployment, if the, the number uh, is accurate. And um, so, I, I mean, it, it seems like that, uh, that those concerns about just a, a huge surge in unemployment are, are maybe going away. And uh, with with home prices holding steady, it doesn't seem like um, the folks who are who are late on their foreclosures are really going to get hammered to the same extent that they were 10 years ago. Uh, since you brought up New York and you'd mentioned previously this idea of people moving out of the cities, is it really happening? Is that or is that just something we occasionally see on Twitter? And if it is happening, do you think that's a, a, a true long term trend? Yeah, that's that's a question everyone is asking right now. So Manhattan saw a, a sharp drop in in home sales uh, compared to a year ago. Um, San Francisco, the city of San Francisco, has seen a decline. Um, so in in New York, the uh, some of the outer boroughs and then the suburbs are doing well because there's been this uh, this move away from the the, the dense densely packed city and the idea that if you, uh, you know, have a, a little more elbow room, maybe you won't have people coughing on you, you'll be less likely to, to catch the coronavirus. Um, and, uh, you know, San Francisco saw kind of a similar thing. But those those are really the only two places I can point to off the top of my head that have seen a sharp slowdown in, in home sales. I mean, it, everywhere else, we've got these very intense shortages of, of homes for sale and just a, a ton of interest and activity. So it, it seems for now that there, there's a, a real interest in the suburbs, and that that's a reversal from the the past decade. I mean, we saw we saw this real push back towards urban living. We've seen you know gentrification in in uh, urban areas, huge price gains, huge home price gains in San Francisco and New York because that's where the the job growth was. The, the highest paying jobs were in New York and San Francisco. And home prices and demand for for homes uh, follow the the jobs. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I mean, the right now the median home price in San Francisco is one point four million. That, that's not one point four million for a mansion. That's just one point four million for the typical house or the typical uh, apartment. Um, so there there is uh, you know some some thought that now that people can work remotely that they, they will work remotely and, and move to, to Idaho or Arizona or Texas or Ohio or some, some place where their, their housing dollar goes a lot farther, but they can collect their, uh, their fat salaries from the tech industry. Um, I don't know. It's uh, who knows? I mean, you can, the, the urbanists all say that the, uh, the cities have a lot of momentum that uh, the, the energy of, of cities, that the, these economic effects of, uh, of being around other, other highly skilled, highly paid people are, are you know, pretty, they're, they're lasting and they're, they're not going to go away. And that maybe when the pandemic is gone, that, uh, that those cities will regain their momentum. I, it, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say. You wrote an article uh, about affordability and you mentioned some of these uh, high cost cities like San Francisco and how much the housing is relative to the median income. And it's, you know, in many cases, seven, eight, 10 times the median income, way above the rule of thumb you often hear, don't buy a house that's more than three or four times your median income. And you began the article with a with a story of someone who's living in Boston. He's thinking, 
all right, I can buy this house here for $750,000 and pay $12,000 in property taxes every year. Or I can move to Georgia, buy a house for $250,000, $300,000, very little taxes, bigger house, more space. Uh, and the person you mentioned in that article actually did do that. The flip side of it is these big cities, um, at least over the last 25 years or so, buying a house was a great investment. Whereas if you go to someplace like Cincinnati or Cleveland or Scranton, you can get a cheaper house, but over the last 20, 25 years, your house didn't make a lot of money for you. Yeah. And that, that's been the real conundrum of the housing market over the past generation. Um, so yeah, and I, I went back and looked at the numbers over the past 25 years and it used to be that uh, Silicon Valley and, and San Francisco and New York were expensive, but maybe twice as much as what you would pay in other cities. And and now it's you know four times, five times as, as much as you would uh, pay for a typical house in Chicago or, or St. Louis. Um, so, yeah, it's really opened up this this huge gap. Uh, in the, the case of that, uh, that homeowner you mentioned, uh, he, he moved from uh, Boston to Athens, Georgia. He's, he's happy. He's got a, a big yard for his kids to play in and a basement, and, uh, and it feels like he made the, the right move. Um, but it's, it is tough. I mean, over the past 25 years, the, the, the housing markets that seemed just the most eye-wateringly expensive were also the ones that appreciated so if, if you had sucked it up and paid 600 grand for a, a house in Silicon Valley 20 years ago, you'd have a house that's worth probably $2 million or more now. And if you bought a house in Detroit or, or Cleveland, uh, your, your house would not have even appreciated at the, the same pace as inflation. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough call. You know, do you, uh, do you go move to St. Louis or Indianapolis where you or Dallas where you know your your money's going to go a lot farther, but it's the home's probably not going to appreciate in value. It's uh, I mean, f- for a lot of people that that's really the only choice because you know qualifying for a, a mortgage on a one point four million dollar home in San Francisco is is almost impossible. It's kind of funny um, if I can interject here uh, because you're talking about how um, buying these houses in these very expensive neighborhoods, towns, cities, they're the ones that appreciate it. It was also kind of similar in the stock market. Like how long have we been talking about how overvalued some of these tech stocks are? But if you didn't buy them, you missed out on the massive gains in the stock market over the last few years. So it's funny how there's a similarity there that we can think something's overvalued or overpriced, but that's what's going to keep going up. There you go. So I, I guess we could call Silicon Valley and uh, and Manhattan uh, growth markets and, and Detroit and Cleveland value markets. <laughs> yes. And as I looked right. at my value funds today, I, I totally understand that. Um, I thought one interesting thing in the in your article, you quoted Brody Gay, who's the vice president of research at Unison Home Ownership Investors, as saying home value is a reflection of income, strong growth, strong job growth attracts young talent. So there's this virtuous cycle. Um which totally makes sense, right? I mean, you have an area where you're willing to pay people a lot of money. They move there. They have a lot of money so they can bid up home prices. It'll be interesting to see if that changes or not. I mean, we, we have heard of companies like Facebook saying, we're willing to hire people in the middle of the country. We may not pay them as much as we pay the people in California, but they're still going to make a pretty good salary. Yeah, and then of course you you see the stories about the the Google employees living in a in a van in the parking lot or uh, you know crashing with with five other people to to save money. So um, yeah, it's tough, but it's 
I mean, with the NASDAQ at record highs, the, uh, the those folks are they've got options that are in the money and they can still afford to, to keep bidding up home prices. Um, any do you want to take any any shot at prognosticating at all? I mean, in that article, um, there were some quotes of people saying like these high priced areas can't go too much higher. Um, do you have a sense of, of real estate in general over the next year or two interest rates? Should people, uh, someone was telling me the other day that their parents were saying, you need to buy a house now because interest rates are at all time lows and they're going to go up, creating this sort of urgency. Like, I have to get the house now. Do you Which have any we've sense also of been saying for years now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Interesting. They can't go any lower. They can't go any lower. And they just keep going lower. Yeah, it's it's so hard to to make a, uh, a you know very specific promise like that because you're you've got a good chance of being wrong. Um, well, one, I, I mean, you have to think that part of the reason that home prices have continued going up is because mortgage rates are so low. So you know, a lot of people are they're not uh, buying a, a price; they're they're buying a monthly payment. And so as even as rates have gone from four percent down to three percent over the past year that's uh that just added like 70 grand to a, a typical home buyer's budget so um so yeah falling mortgage rates are, are good for buyers to an extent but then to to an extent uh, the the savings on your your monthly payment are going to be eaten up because there's more demand for housing and so prices prices are going up um I don't. It, it's hard to, to say what's uh, you know if, if this is going to continue. There are several housing economists who say that uh, we could have a, a small pullback in in home prices over the next year or two, um, just because we've uh, you know, we've got high unemployment, we've got all this economic uncertainty, um, we've we've had this little boom here as the the spring selling season was canceled and then compressed in a few months over the summer. But maybe that that won't continue. I haven't heard anyone say we're going to have significant drops in in home prices. Um, but I, I guess one one argument in, in favor of the uh, uh, you know the buy now um, position is we've got a pretty intense shortage of housing. There's just not a lot of construction in in most areas of the country, um, and so I mean the, the supply and demand. Uh, equation seems to uh seems to favor home ownership i mean it's uh it's hard to see home prices crashing and it's uh it's easy to see them continuing to rise over the the coming years and decades right so we'll come to wrapping this up here and as as a final couple of questions i was just curious there's sort of any under the radar developments that aren't getting as much attention as they should, or if you've learned anything about the real estate or mortgage markets over the years that you think more people should know about. Um, let's see. Under the radar, I guess uh, one one thing that jumps out is just that this uh, how different this recession has been from the Great Recession. So, you know, leading into the Great Recession, there were a lot of concerns about housing affordability. And then that went away with the uh, with the crash in home prices, and so people who couldn't afford houses suddenly could afford them. Um, and that hasn't happened this time around. So we, you know, people who who can't who couldn't afford houses before this recession still can't afford them. And so we're seeing uh, kind of this this widening of the the wealth gap. So the people who who own stocks, who own houses, are uh, are doing pretty well. And the people who don't own them are, uh, you know, still on the outside and maybe a little bit farther on the outside. Um, 
A side note to that is that there's a remains a huge racial gap in homeownership in the U.S. I mean, the uh, the the black homeownership rate is a good 40 points uh, below the the white homeownership rate. Um, you know, f- fewer than half of African-Americans own homes and uh, something like three quarters of uh, white Americans own their homes. So that that's a, another troubling trend. And it's it's hard to see how that's going to be addressed with so little uh, construction happening. Well, this has been great, Jeff. We really appreciate you stopping by. Uh, hopefully you'll come back to join us again, because this is this is something that I sort of know the periphery of. So it's great to be able to read your articles and have you on the show every once in a while. All right. Well, yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you. Well, that's the show. Our email is answers at fool.com. I want to thank Heather Horton for stepping in on the taping, but it's still edited continuously by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.